Hi, everybody. It's Seth, the producer of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm here in March 2020 to just uh, pop on a quick note into this episode saying, hey, it's March 2020. And you know what that means. We're all recording from our own homes, uh, all separate and all uh, social distancing. So that means the sound quality of this one is a little strange. But uh, just to let you know, uh, each time we've been doing these home recordings, they've been getting better and better and better. So I can guarantee you the next one's going to sound a little bit better than this. And the next one after that's going to sound a little bit better than that one, etc., etc. So So uh, just so you know, this is all temporary, and we'll get back to our regular episodes as soon as we can, sound quality-wise. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back. We're still social distancing. Now, there must have been a weird back and forth here because Thursday of last week's episode, we were broadcasting from our closet in our laundry room, right? But then Tuesday of this week's episode... I think that was recorded in the studio before we came home for the uh, the great retreat. That's right. Uh, and also we recorded our vault episode intros about a month out. So people might have uh, <laughs> uh, noticed that as well. But this episode, part two of our look at the MOA, uh, Twilight of the MOA, we're calling it. Uh, this episode is recorded from our respective uh, closets in our homes. So you're actually in a closet now as opposed to your uh, your laundry room. Is that correct? That's true. I decided to become a monster in the closet, uh, and I've got so I've got the same talismans uh, that I had last time in order to uh, bring me good luck and watch over me while making this recording. I've got Tom Atkins from Night of the Creeps. I've got my Thor Christ, but this time I also brought in an extremely tasteful novelty mug that my wife found in an East Tennessee thrift store, uh, which is great because I cannot bring this mug to the office. I am sure I would get in trouble for that. Yeah, the home office brings with it uh, certain advantages, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. For for me, uh, I looked around the house. I would have loved to have had a toy of a moa, like a little plastic, uh, like Schleck moa. But uh, sadly, we do not have one, and it would be irresponsible for me to even try and mail order one at the moment. Uh, so you have a plastic Shrek. No, I have. I do have a plastic terror bird. So ah. it's not one hundred percent accurate, but it's, it is still an extinct, flightless bird. Uh, so I'm going to set it right here next to my microphone, and it will it will serve as my mascot. Well, may our pocket-sized idols watch over us. Uh, so, so where did we leave off last time? All right, so in our last episode, and if you didn't listen to it, do go back and listen to that episode before this one. In it, we discuss the evolution of flightless birds and the rise of the moa, nine species of large flightless birds that evolved as the dominant vertebrates on the isolated islands of what is currently known as New Zealand. But the rule of the MOA did not last forever because Homo sapiens arrived. And this episode will deal with the subsequent extinction of the MOA. Because you know what they say, more humans, MOA problems. <laughs> I wondered how you were going to work that in. Saying, I had, oh, You wow. know, I had to get to it eventually. Yeah. Uh, th- th- yeah, that, that's true for, I'd say, every organism except us, right? Except maybe like yes. pathogens that, pl- that prey upon us. Right. Yeah. And certainly when we're dealing with uh, with megafauna, mm-hmm. um, creatures of that nature, uh, theirs is a, is a tale of doom whenever humans enter the equation. And we'll we'll point out some other examples of that as we move along. No, wait a minute. I'm thinking of some more exceptions. We got rats, too. I mean, rats yeah. were great for them. Uh, rats, so, and rats will come up. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 yeah, a few exceptions there. But you don't want to be a MOA when humans show up. Right. So the rule of the MOA was lengthy. Uh, they evolved into the, into these dominant positions in New Zealand. Uh, but as we discussed on the show before, uh, it can be precarious at the top, certainly for apex predators, but also for massive dominant herbivores, especially when something changes. Oh, yeah. We also talked about this uh, in our episode. I believe it was on uh, the, the Leviathan or the Leviathan genus of like the, the ancient predatory sperm whale. That's right. Yes. Where, yeah, it's easy to look at a creature like that or a creature like Host's eagle, which we discussed in the last episode, to mm-hmm. look at these creatures and think, well, that there's, there's no taking that down. That's 
that's a, that's a dominant organism. But it is, uh, you know, it is the the ruler, but it is uh, in, it, it is its throne rests upon a precarious pyramid of bones. Yeah, heavy lies the crown. Exactly. So yeah, when something changes, it can topple everything over. And in the 13th century CE, uh, I've seen 1280 CE as a potential date. A major change arrived on the shores of New Zealand, and that change came in the form of Homo sapiens. Uh, the long world changing wave of human migration had finally made its way uh, to you know near the bottom of the world to this nation of the birds. And this would have been uh, what would uh, come to be known as the Maori. Uh, these were uh, these settlers were a, a Polynesian people who arrived in several waves uh, in what is now New Zealand. This is one of the later regions of planet Earth to be settled by humans. Absolutely, yeah. The, these were some of the last uh, in true pioneers uh, heading into parts of the world that not not only parts of the world that they had not been to before, but where no human had gone before. Um, you know, the European uh, colonists and explorers would only come in the wake of these true pioneers. Now, Polynesian culture itself is, is endlessly fascinating, and I'd, I'd love to come back and deal with some of the related topics uh, on the show, uh, such as their amazing navigational abilities or the use of uh, aquaculture uh, in, uh, in the Hawaiian islands. Uh, but essentially, we're talking about a long curving leg of human expansion that extends from China through the Philippines New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Samoa, Tahiti, uh, Hawaii, Easter Island, and other islands in this broad stretch of the ocean. The, again, they were the, the Polynesians were the last true pioneers of human expansion. And Polynesian expansion took place over the course of thousands of years as well. And the culture evolved along the way. It took, takes on, ends up taking on different forms in the locations where they land, often due to resulting isolation, uh, you know, because these are, in many cases, very far-flung uh, islands. And, and, and sometimes we're talking about, you know, centuries and centuries between uh, uh, people making it to one island versus another. So New Zealand was discovered and colonized very late in human expansion. Uh, and when the archaic uh, Maori arrived, they encountered the moa. Uh, following this encounter, the nine species of moa would scarcely last more than another century, and they were extinct by 1445. So uh, let's get into what we're mainly going to discuss in this episode, this this collision between Homo sapiens and Moa. And probably the best place to start there is by talking about just the word Moa. Uh, where does it come from? Uh, I was reading in Prodigious Birds, Moas and Moa Hunting in New Zealand by Athol Anderson. And the author shares that the, the earliest recorded use of the word Moa comes uh, via Cornish missionary William Colenso, who in 1838 heard that some Maori described the Moa as a large bird, others as a large bird with a face like that of a man Ooh. that uh, lived in a mountain cavern that was guarded by two giant lizards. Wow. Uh, this and other tales describe the residents of Mount uh, Taranaki or uh, Mount Egmont, uh, describe the, the various strange residents that live there, often taking the form of abnormal birds or lizards, sometimes with human qualities. And this really lines up with what we've talked about on the show before, about sacred mountains and holy mountains and the various myths that uh, people uh, accumulate regarding the sorts of things you would find there and the sorts of creatures that would populate those uh, those mysterious uh, cliffs up there. Yeah, uh, there are a couple of ways of looking at that. In, in our episode on the Sacred Mountains, uh, I guess we did two of those episodes. I mean, one thing is we talked about the idea that if you get really, really high up there, there's some evidence that people sometimes start, you know, experiencing psychosis or hallucinations. Yeah. Um, so, like, that could be a source of some supernatural beliefs in some cases. But uh, But I'd say probably the more prevalent issue is just that the top of the mountain is inaccessible. So it is naturally a place to put your mythical creatures at home in, you know, that that is where they hide. Absolutely. Now, I know what uh, some people are probably wondering here is uh, 1838. That sounds kind of late for the uh, the earliest recorded use of the word moa. Yeah. So how long would the species have been extinct before the word appears in writing? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it seems a little confusing at, at, at first, right? Uh, because first contact between Europeans and Maori occurred December 18th, 1642. 
uh, with uh, Abel Tasman's Dutch East India Company expedition. Now, specifically, Europeans had been asking the Maori about other giant creatures recorded in their traditions since the 1770s. In the near two centuries after, there was certainly communication and exchange between Europeans and Maori, uh, in addition to, of course, colonial subjugation. Uh, uh, Anderson discusses this uh, uh, in his book and, and points out that earlier references to the Moa might either have uh, not been recognized or not associated with the term Moa itself. So, you know, descriptions of the animal might not have been immediately tied with Moa. Uh, for instance, there were accounts of spirits covered in hair in the form of birds. And there was talk of how uh, a giant kiwi uh, lived in the mountains. Uh, and uh, we'll again remind everyone that uh, the Kiwi and the Moa are not actually all that related, but this uh, this sort of uh, uh, discovery would have stemmed from er- from general European interest in the extant Kiwi. So you know oh. they might have been asking about the Kiwi, and the, they would have then heard about myths of, of giant birds that are on, in some way like a Kiwi. That is interesting. Yeah, the idea that uh, that the concept could persist over time, especially if you have like something that's morphologically very similar but just like much smaller to refer to right yeah and in all of this again we're we're just we're discussing like european knowledge of the moa yeah uh, which is ultimately tied to european knowledge and understanding of the maori which of course is is a strained relationship uh, you know to say the least because again you're talking about the um, the indigenous people, the Maori, and you're talking about uh, the the colonial power that then arrives on their shore in the form of the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Anderson also points out that a major factor might be that the Maori uh, conceptualized the Moa as not being true birds, but as just being as being bird like, which might sound a little confusing. But then I think back to just some of the weird things about the Moa. You know, like the 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 thing, the, the, the fact that they had no wings, not even vestigial wings. They were just two limbed organisms. Um, hmm. You could see why it might defy easy categorization. Uh, likewise, they're just the, the size of the larger species. Well, sure. I mean, when we use the term bird now, I think like you and I are going to be referring to an evolutionary clade uh, that is defined by evolutionary relationships, but if you're just categorizing animals that you see in the world, what are the bases on which you form your categories? Like, a bird might well be understood as something that flies. So if there's something that is kind of like a bird and that it has a beak and all that, but it doesn't fly, it doesn't meet your necessary criteria for what makes something a bird. Exactly, yeah. And so the the bones of the moa were uh, apparently not described by the Maori as bird bones, but they were described as moa bones. Mm. So here's a, here's a quote from uh, uh, from Anderson on all of this. Quote, it is very difficult to document this point, but the separation of dangerous mythological moa from large birds used as food and easily hunted to extinction in Pollock's description and the lack of any comparable prosaic tradition about moas in most of the moa stories collected by missionaries seems suggestive. Certainly, it was the very lack of an unequivocal association between the term moa and any straightforward account of large birds hunted and eaten by Maoris, which formed the main flaw exploited throughout the long debate about what, if anything, Maoris had known about the dinorithiforms. Oh, and the, the dinorithiforms, that refers to the group to which the, the moa belong, right? Yes. So we'll, we'll ponder this dangerous versus easy uh, to drive to extinction question as we proceed, because I'm not entirely convinced that a species can't be both of these things. You know, certainly when humans and the humans in question have tools, tactics and invasive species on their side. Oh, sure. I mean, some of the most dangerous creatures in a one on one context are also some of the easiest to drive extinct. I mean, if you just wanted to drive an animal extinct, what would be like the easiest ones to do? Probably like large carnivores, because there's already so few of them. Of course, the moa were not carnivores like this. But yeah, of course, like large animals generally being fewer in number because of their energy requirements within the environment would seem to be easier to drive to extinction than if you were trying to exterminate something that's very easy to kill like rats. Yeah. And, and again, I think they 
the evidence seems to indicate they would have been dangerous creatures because these were big animals. Even the little bush moa was four and a half feet tall. Now, that's smaller than an adult southern cassowary, which uh, is generally five to six feet tall or uh, one and a half to 1.8 meters. But Uh, if you see one, you would not mess with it. Right. Yeah, they are they're fierce creatures. Uh, so it seems like the, the larger species of moa especially would certainly be in a position to put the hurt on an aggressor and do so in a way that's in keeping with what we see in, in extant ratite species. Hmm. But does that mean they were a match for the humans that arrived on their shores? No, because the archaic Maori were a very skilled and advanced people. Uh, They arrived in waves from uh, Hawaiki. Uh, This is a mythical land that is usually identified as Tahiti by historians. And they were, of course, skilled sailors that arrived on wooden vessels uh, capable of traversing great distances at sea. For instance, the distance between Tahiti and New Zealand is 2,950 miles or 4,747 kilometers. I mean, that's a long way to go, uh, even if you know exactly where you're going. But here we're talking about like the settlement of a new previously unknown island. Right. So, yeah, I, I just yeah, I just really want to drive home like the skilled nature of these homo sapiens that arrived. Um, and what's more, they brought with them both human cunning and human tool use. They were masters of the club and the spear, especially. Uh, they also brought with them other animals, including a breed of domesticated Polynesian dog known as the Kuri, which, as with other Polynesian dogs, did not bark, but apparently howled. Hmm. Uh, they also brought with them quite by accident, the uh, Kiori, the the Polynesian rat. Um, Now, the Kiori is still a pest species in New Zealand uh, because, as we know, once rats become established anywhere, they're very difficult to to get rid of. The curry dog, on the other hand, has been extinct since the arrival of Europeans. And we'll talk more about that species in in a minute. Uh, And they also brought with them um, plants as well, such as the sweet potato. Well, wait, is there any thinking that the sweet potato could be involved in driving the moa extinct or uh, probably I not, not, right? <laughs> I have not read anything to suggest that. Uh, but, but I mean, that kind of that sort of thing is certainly possible, right? Generally mm-hmm. speaking, when you have humans from a, a distant land show up and introduce into the ecosystem not only their destructive selves, but also invasive organisms, uh, there's, you know, it, it, you're just really upending the crockpot. You know, you're really changing the, the chemistry of the the whole ecosystem around potentially. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, now that I think about it, I could totally see how I'm not saying this is the case here, but I could totally see how something like the sweet potato could drive a, a native species extinct because humans come, they bring with them their crop staples. In order to plant those crops, they have to uh, to establish agricultural zones that destroy natural ecosystems. So, yeah, I could see it. I, again, not saying we know that, that happened here. Right. All right. On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue to discuss the collision between Homo sapiens and the MOA. All right, we're back. So what do you need as fresh colonists in a a world like New Zealand? Uh, well, let's see. Classic uh, hierarchy of needs. I'd say first you need uh, you need fresh water, food, and shelter, probably, right? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, am, am I on the right track here? <laughs> yes, yes. But another need that I, I didn't instantly think of, and part of this is probably because I've, I've never been to, to New Zealand myself, uh, mm. so I don't have like the, the bodily experience of this, but New Zealand can be quite cold. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're arriving in a new land, but also a land where the temperature has dipped down a bit more. Um, so the, the archaic Maori, uh, they were fortunate in that they did bring with them the Kuri dogs, which ha- helped solve some of these issues because the creatures had many utilitarian uses. Uh, they could be eaten. Uh, their pelt could be made into clothing and uh, other parts of its body could be used for you know, bits of clothing and tool use and so forth. But beyond that, you know, when they started exploring this new world, they very quickly would have discovered the moa. And the, the, the moa would be just a, a gift of resources to these people. Now, here's a question that researchers and historians have, have pondered over the years, though. What sort of moa population did the archaic Maori encounter? It's long been widely accepted that, you know, the, the newly arrived humans at least played a role in the extinction of the MOA. But there, there, there's been some disagreement in the past over to what extent. For example, did the archaic Maori encounter thriving populations of MOA across much of the islands? Or did they encounter dwindling populations of MOA that were restricted to certain areas? Or did they find MOA populations that were already in severe decline? 
Mm -hmm. And of course, depending on the answer, it paints a different picture of the extent of Maori moa hunting and the impact of their arrival. You know, some could argue that, well, perhaps climate change, volcanic eruptions and or disease had already impacted moa populations and humans were just the final straw. Okay. So the moa certainly went extinct over the next century or so. Uh, you know, there are no moa hiding in the wilds of New Zealand, sadly, no matter what anybody might try and tell you. And it wasn't until the 19th century that Europeans discovered evidence of the great birds consisting of charred skeletons, gizzard stones, and eggshells that certainly told the tale of their demise. DNA evidence, however, does shine light on the question of pre-Maori moa populations. As Rachel uh, Neuer wrote in the New York Times back in 2014, quote, Morton Eric Allentoft, a researcher at the University of Copenhagen and colleagues analyzed DNA from 281 MOAs collected from museums and new excavations and estimated the age of these specimens using radiocarbon dating. They found that in the millenniums before humans arrived in New Zealand, the MOA displayed none of the genetic bottlenecking indicative of a declining population. Okay. So there's no genetic evidence of a, de of a decline in the MOA during the 5,000 years prior to their rapid extinction, uh, you know, via the human arrival. Okay, so what does that tell us? Well, th that leaves us with this version of the story. The archaic Maori arrived on the shores of a new land uh, where strange, often gigantic birds were roaming around. And through the use of spears and snares and hunting dogs and, and the human cunning, they were able to bring the birds down uh, and process their kills with the same sort of efficiency we see, you know, w with the curry dogs. It's also possible that the, the moa had no natural fear of humans as well, which would have just made them even more susceptible to this kind of harvesting. Well, yeah, I'd imagine that's possible, especially without um, without large mammalian predators on the island of New Zealand. Like uh, their only real predator would have been the uh, the Haas eagle, right? Which so right. they're adapted to a landscape in which the only thing to worry about comes down at you from above. Uh, I, who knows what they would have done if, like, a, you know, a, a bipedal hominid walks up to them in a group. Yeah, exactly. And and plus, their extinction didn't just uh, come via the hunting of grown adult moas, because uh, their their large eggs were certainly sought after foods as well. Uh, we see that from some of the, you know, the, the evidence of, uh, uh, you know, the finding eggshells and, uh, you know, evidence of the eggs having been consumed. And since the moa produced just one or two eggs, the harvesting of their eggs would have further spelled doom for the nine species of moa. Hmm. For example, the uh, I believe this is a Kakora egg, the largest moa egg ever uncovered, would have weighed nine pounds when fresh. Wow. To put that in perspective, an ostrich egg uh, typically weighs 1.4 kilograms or 3.1 pounds, which is more than 20 times the weight of a chicken egg. So we're talking about uh, you know, to, to you know, people that uh, you have know, arrived on, on these islands, you know, struggling for existence like that, that's huge bounty of resources in that egg. Do you ever see uh, anybody eat an ostrich egg? I feel like I have before yeah. in the past, uh, but uh, I haven't. It's not the kind of thing I've seen on a menu recently. It did not come highly recommended to me. Uh. <laughs> Apparently, in addition to being very large, it's got a it's got a tough shell. I guess, as you might uh, imagine, you know, it can't just have like an eggshell thick, uh, like a chicken eggshell thickness shell. Uh, right. It's a little bit difficult to get into. But then, um, once you do get into it, uh, tremendous nutritional resources. Yeah, I mean that 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 that's a one egg omelet for you. Yeah. So basically, the situation is the Maori ended up hunting and harvesting the moa faster than the moa could reproduce. And as the bounty of moa flesh and bone dwindled, the moa hunting Maori diversified and came to depend on fishing, fowling, uh, the gathering of mollusks, etc. And this led to the establishment of more permanent and semi-permanent settlements. So then it looks like it really was us. It was people that drove the moa extinct. Oh, yes. I, I, I think at this point, especially with the genetic evidence, that's, that's with, without question. Now, it's reported in Why Did New Zealand's Moas Go Extinct by Virginia Morell, uh, Morton Allentoft, who we mentioned earlier, uh, evolutionary biologist at the University of Copenhagen, remarked in 2014 that the idea may run counter to some ideas that we tend to have about indigenous people. We often think of them... Uh, 
uh, you know, living in equilibrium with nature. Uh, but the Maori in, end up killing and eating the moa uh, at every stage of the creature's life. Uh, so Alan Toft contends that this sort of harmony with nature that we sometimes envision ultimately rarely exists within human beings, and that any arriving humans would have extinguished the moa the same way. And certainly we see other such extinctions um, you know, in, including the extinctions of large flightless birds due to the arrival of humans. So again, don't think less of the Maori for the extinction of the moa. Uh, the, these great birds were always on a collision course with humans. And if by some miracle, the Polynesians had never found New Zealand, the Europeans would have uh, eradicated the moa on their own. So again, it's an old story. Humans arrive somewhere, megafauna is hunted into extinction. We see that with the mammoths. We see that with cave bears, giant kangaroos, etc. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, it seems like a, a ubiquitous picture of, of human development and, and geographical spread. Like, it is absolutely nothing unique about whatever individual culture reached this megafauna first. Now, I think one of the really fascinating questions in all of this is be, beyond the questions of like Europeans figuring out what the Maori. Uh, thought about the MOA uh, is just a question of like, what, how does that impact a people, you know, to, to have come to this, to come to New Zealand, to be to essentially become the Maori. And in the process of becoming the Maori, you go through this period of MOA hunting Maori in, in which you have this, you know, this bounty uh, of these, uh, these creatures to, uh, to, to, uh, to hunt and feed on. And then they're gone. Then you have to diversify and change the way you live. Like what is the, the memory of that like uh, in a people? Mm. I found a fascinating article about this published on The Conversation. It's by conservation biologist Priscilla Wei, University of uh, Wakato Associate Professor Himi Wanga, and Professor of Computational Bi Biology Murray Cox. It was published in 2018, and it's titled Dead as the Moa, Oral Traditions Show That Early Maori Recognized Extinction." Interesting. So the, the team of researchers here, which includes a conservation biologist, a linguist, a bioinformationist, and experts in Maori culture, they stress that tracing the centuries-old extinctions is difficult, but that through the uh, collaborative analysis of ancestral sayings, traditional ancestral sayings uh, in Maori culture, they found that early Maori certainly paid attention to the state of flora and fauna in their environment and that they recognized the extinction of the moa. But despite knowing roughly when and who, you know, regarding the moa extinction, we, we don't really know a lot about how the Maori felt about it and how they processed this event, which again, would have been a major event in their lives. This was the destruction of an important food source, as well as a, a source of various tools and parts. Mm. Uh, some of this remains in the Maori oral tradition, specifically in these various ancestral sayings. So the, uh, the researchers here, they point out uh, that of these ancestral sayings, uh, the ones that refer to birds, anyway, a disproportionate number of them refer to the moa, uh, to their appearance, to their, in, to their nature, and their uses to humans. All right, so what would these sayings go like in translation? Well, uh, yeah, I'm just going to share the translation. So they do, they include the original Maori uh, versions in this article. So I encourage anyone to, that's interested to check that out. But like one of them is lost as the moa was lost. Mm. So that's kind of like an expression like dead as a doornail. Except, yeah. Yeah. Or hidden as the moa hid. And then here's another one. The people will disappear like the moa. Ooh. And this this one's really haunting because they point out that as the Europeans arrived, the Maori compared their plight to that of the moa. Wow. So here's a quote. Maori recalled the moa after Europeans arrived too. Maori were suffering badly from diseases and deprivation in the late 1800s. It was as though the Maori world was being felled along with the forests. There was a very real fear among both Maori and Europeans that Maori people and culture would also disappear, just like the Moa. Wow, that is haunting. Yeah. I'm still thinking about these expressions. I was trying to think of a, a point of comparison. Of course, one is... Uh, uh, is like gone the way of the dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, be an expression in English, though. Of course, our knowledge of where the dinosaurs went does not come from cultural memory. It comes from like something we learned through science. Uh, right. I guess you could maybe say gone the way of the dodo. Some people say that. 
that. Yeah. Though I guess when people say that, they tend they tend not to do it with any accepted role in the in the extinction. You know, like yeah. I feel like that's one of the the aspects here worth pondering is that you know the Maori would have have realized that their ancestors. Uh, played this role in the extinction. Uh, now, that's not to say they, you know, did it on purpose. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's a there's a huge difference between, um, you know, say setting out to cause an extinction, and I don't, you know, obviously they wouldn't want to have to have done that because these creatures were a source of of um, of, of vast resources to them. But um, you know, they were, you know, ultimately it was it was not something they were, you know, capable of uh, exerting control over. You know, I mean. Uh, like it's it's really has always been a human struggle to figure out to what extent we can exploit uh the natural world without damaging it beyond control and clearly like that is something that is still a major uh stumbling block uh, to human beings we still uh mishandle that same equation on a on a daily basis all right we're going to take one more break but when we come back uh, you know we're going to move beyond the extinction of the moa and ponder the question well Could we bring the MOA back? All right, we're back. A dinosaur story. (laughs) Is that a movie? We're back, a dinosaur story? You don't know that movie? I don't know that I do. Oh, man. I I think I rented that when I was a kid. Let's see. When did that come out? 87. No, wait, 93, based on an 87 book. Oh, yeah, I rented that one when I was a kid. That was a a Turtles video uh, find that I brought home. (laughs) <laughs> scavenge that from the from the bone heap and I don't think it was good I mean I haven't seen it since I was a child it, it does not seem like one of the animated dinosaur movies that would hold up best I don't know I'm looking it up and this voice cast you got John Goodman mm-hmm. you got Jay Leno Walter I think, Cronkite I think Walter Cronkite plays like a mad scientist who brings dinosaurs through a time portal or something and puts them into New York in the in the 90s and Julia Child is in this Really? Yeah. yeah. Does she play yeah, one she, of the dinosaurs? No, sadly, she plays a worker at the Museum of Natural History. Mm, okay. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe that would be uh, interesting to go back and excavate at some point. But uh, Yeah, it looks sure. great. It has four directors. Always a good sign. <laughs> Mark of quality. Uh, okay, so we're talking about... Uh, the possible resurrection of the MOA. Now, uh, there, there was a pretty good article I was reading about this on Stat by the science writer Sharon Begley from February 7th, 2018. Uh, and it concerned the possible de-extinction of one species of MOA. Uh, of course, if you're not familiar with the concept of de-extinction, it has come up on the show before, but you can probably figure it out from the name, right? It's also known as resurrection biology. It refers to the process of bringing an extinct species back to life, the pop culture example that everybody knows is Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. Now, what did they do in Jurassic Park? They found ancient deposits of amber uh, or fossilized tree sap in which dinosaur-era mosquitoes had been trapped when the sap was still soft, and then the sap hardened over time and then fossilized in the ground. Uh, presumably, the, the mosquitoes in the sap were trapped with their bellies full of dinosaur blood that they had just feasted on. And so the scientists in the book and the movie Jurassic Park, they extract the preserved dinosaur blood, they they sequence it out they get mr dna from the from the insect bellies and then they use that blood and the dna sequenced from it to clone dinosaurs it was of course i I would say a very ingenious plot device but unfortunately it looks like it probably would not work in reality Um, what if what if the reason it didn't work though was that it turns out the mosquitoes had not consumed the blood of dinosaurs but it consumed the blood of the time travelers from ray bradbury's (laughs) sound of thunder man (laughs) What, what were the chances? Yeah, that would be a very good closed time travel loop. <laughs> what, do, what do you like better, the, the time travel movies where you go back and actually change the past or the ones where you go back and it proves to be a closed loop where you just cause whatever present already happened? Oh, well, you have to go back and forth between the two, you know? I, I feel like that's the only way it really works, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like it's the sour and the, the sweet with your time travel. But let's bring things back to Jurassic Park. Why didn't it work? 
Okay, so uh, basically there are several reasons, but they all come down to time. Now, one of the reasons is not, in fact, that you couldn't discover a mosquito with prehistoric blood in its guts. That, uh, but believe it or not, uh, paleontologists actually have discovered preserved insects full of the remains of, not, not intact, but the remains of prehistoric blood in fossil beds. Uh, and this is a slight tangent, but I didn't already know this, and I was amazed by what I was reading here. So there's one prominent example I could find. I don't know if this is still the only major example known today, uh, but it was described in a research article published in PNAS in 2013 called Hemoglobin-Derived Porphyrins Preserved in a Middle Eocene Blood-Engorged Mosquito. And it was by Dale E. Greenwald, Yulia S. Gareva, Sandra M. Celiastrom, Tim Rose, and Ralph E. Harbach. And the discovery was also written up by Ed Yong in a short news item for the journal Nature on October 14th, 2013. Uh, so the researchers here were examining a total of 36 mosquito specimens from a shale deposit known as the Coal Creek member of the Kishinen Formation in northwestern Montana. And the layer from which they were recovered is estimated to be about 46 million years old. So this collection of fossilized mosquitoes included two previously unknown species of the genus uh, Kulisata. Uh, one was Kulisata kishinen and one was Kulisata limniscata. Uh, but one of the mosquitoes from this boneyard was truly special, uh, and you can look up images if you want on the Internet. In, in the words of the researchers, the image of this specimen was, quote, obviously that of a female blood-engorged mosquito with non-plumose antennae and a very dark red-black distended abdomen compared with the non-hematophagous male. Uh, so there's a new word for your vampire fiction, by the way. Hematophagus means eats blood or drinks blood. Non-hematophagus would mean does not drink blood like the male mosquitoes. The male mosquito doesn't drink blood. Obviously, if your gut is busting with blood like this, uh, this female mosquito here, you are hematophagus. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but Ed Yong writes in his summary that prior to this discovery, paleontologists had found fossils of blood-sucking insects, but we always had to guess what these insects were feeding on through kind of indirect cues, like preserved evidence of blood-borne parasites contained in their digestive systems. This fossil find was totally different because it contained direct molecular evidence of blood feeding within the insect's gut, specifically lots of iron and organic compounds called porphyrins, which are constituents of hemoglobin. That's the protein responsible for transporting oxygen and blood. Uh, and the find was also extremely unlikely. In the words of the lead author, Dale Greenwald, quote, the abdomen of a blood-engorged mosquito is like a balloon ready to burst. It is very fragile. The chances that it wouldn't have disintegrated prior to fossilization were infinitesimally small. And it's amazing because that's on top of the already minuscule chances of any animal being fossilized in the first place. I mean, remember the the fossil lottery has few winners. Almost all organisms that ever live just decompose and disappear without leaving a trace. That's right. But unfortunately, there are a couple of reasons you cannot use this mosquito or a mosquito like it to extract dino DNA. Bingo. Dino DNA. Both of these reasons have to do with time. Uh, so the first is that the fossil mosquito is only 46 million years old. So the last of the non-avian dinosaurs we know died out in the KPG extinction. That was about 66 million years ago. This mosquito would have been from the Middle Eocene. Uh, so if it were possible to clone anything based on what was in the mosquito's guts, it would have to be something that lived in North America around that period. And I was like, well... Hell, I'll look up a candidate, and I found a pretty cool one. The coolest candidate I could come up with was named Mesonix, whose name means middle claw, and who is part of a now extinct larger group of carnivorous ungulates. Carnivorous ungulates. Remember, the ungulates are the hoofed mammals. Uh, so oh, yeah. know, examples would be deer, you know, uh, bovines, uh, uh, horses. But these, of course, are carnivorous. You can't think of ungulates like that today. There were once predatory carnivorous hoofed mammals roaming the continents. Uh, you know, try to think of a donkey that could eat you. 
Yeah, and this is a really cool one to look up um, paleo art for because it seems like it's just a very hard creature to try and envision in your head, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of the illustrations end up just looking like this weird kind of like long-snouted, almost almost like a cross between a rodent and a lion. Uh, it's You get a re really weird sense of category confusion when you look at these images. I mean, a lot of uh, descriptions say it would have been in some ways superficially like a wolf, but of course it was not of the, the order of the, the dogs. It was not like a big cat. Right. It's not like a wolf. It's not any of that. In terms of evolutionary relationships, it's more like a deer or a cow or a horse or something, but it is a carnivore that would, you know, might bite your leg off. So anyway, I'm all for cloning a ton of those if we could. <laughs> uh, but again, I, I want to stress that uh, th there was not clonable material within that mosquito's abdomen. And in fact, based on what we know, there couldn't be. Uh, because the other reason you couldn't clone dinosaurs from the gut contents of any mosquito is that DNA is extremely fragile. It breaks down very quickly. It starts breaking down within hours of the death of an organism. Uh, after 46 million years, DNA would degrade to the point where a genome can no longer be recovered, uh, all the more at anything older than 66 million years, so you can't get to a dinosaur. Uh, so then you might wonder, well, how long can DNA last in, in preserved animal remains? What's the farthest back that we could go to sequence the genome of an extinct creature, extract all that information, and then maybe even clone it back to life if possible? Well, the MOA has a part to play in the answer to this question. I, I found this out by total serendipity. I didn't even know this when I started looking into this subject. Uh, so to determine the period within which you could reasonably expect to extract usable DNA from a sample, you need to know the rate of molecular decay for DNA as a molecule. And there was a study in 2012 that looked into this question. It was by our friend Morton E. Allentoft that you mentioned ah. earlier, mm -hmm. uh, but also by Matthew Collins, David Harker, James Hiley, uh, Charlotte L. Oscom, Marie L. Hale, Paula F. Campos. Uh, oh, and apparently add others. I guess it had a lot of authors, sorry. Uh, but it was called The Half-Life of DNA in Bone, Measuring Decay Kinetics in 158 Dated Fossils, uh, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. So the authors here examined mitochondrial DNA from 158 radiocarbon-dated bones of the extinct New Zealand MOA, all from between 600 and 8,000 years ago, and all preserved in roughly equivalent environmental conditions. And that's very important because it gives us a point of reference if, like, the conditions under which the bones are preserved are roughly the same, then you can start to get a good idea between them what the average rate of decay is. It's not going to vary as much due to differing environmental factors. Um, so they estimated uh, from this sample that the average half-life of DNA was about 521 years. So you start with an original sample of DNA in a bone, and after 521 years, half of it's gone. Then after another 521 years, half of what remains is broken down. So now you're down to a quarter of the original concentration. So it, it, the, the decay adds up fast. Uh, now, of course, the decay rate of DNA will not be the same in all cases. It's going to depend on factors uh, about in what conditions it's preserved. But even in ideal conditions, there does appear to be a ceiling on how long DNA lasts or, or how long you could expect to get any usable information out of it. Under the absolute best conditions, this means basically every molecular bond between the nucleotides of the DNA would be broken down after about 6.8 million years. But long before that, even if some bonds are still intact, the DNA would be so broken up that it would be unreadable. Uh, the maximum recoverability threshold for meaningful genetic information might be something like 1.5 million years or so. So it seems to have been the scientific consensus for, for several years now that DNA is way too short-lived for us to ever clone dinosaurs, except I did come across a really recent study just from this month, March 2020. Oh, wow. uh, now, it doesn't disprove the, this, but it, it is a still controversial reported finding that would seem to challenge this if it's correct. And so it was published in National Science Review again, March 2020 uh, by Alida M. Balliol et al. And uh, so the, the authors write here, quote, a histological ground section from a duck-billed dinosaur nestling, and the species is uh, Hippacrosaurus stebingeri, 
revealed microstructures morphologically consistent with nuclei and chromosomes in cells within calcified cartilage. We hypothesize that this exceptional uh, cellular uh, preservation extended to the molecular level and had molecular features in common with extant avian cartilage. So th- this is a duck-billed dinosaur. It's another Montana special discovered in the 1980s. It would have been a nest of young duck-billed herbivores that all died sometime around 75 million years ago. And the paleontologists here were examining skull shards from these juveniles, and the shards would have been made out of cartilage rather than out of bone. But when examining the these cartilage skull shards or the remains of them, uh, the, uh, the researchers believe that they discovered signs of intact cell nuclei and DNA within these fragments. Uh, but then again, I, I want to say a lot of paleontologists are skeptical about this supposed find. Of course, there's the theoretical limitation on how long DNA would last or at least is believed to last uh, on a molecular basis. But I was also reading a piece by a University of Bristol vertebrate paleontologist named Michael Benton, who thinks it's more likely that if there is any actual DNA in this sample, it came from recent external contamination, not from a dinosaur. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens there with follow-up research. But uh, I don't know. That's interesting. Oh, absolutely. And it gives us some hope. Right. Uh, but I've got to bring it back to the MOA. So whatever the truth about DNA from millions of years ago, as unlikely as that seems— The MOA has existed much more recently, and for that reason, the idea of recovering the genome of the MOA and bringing a species of MOA back from extinction is much more plausible by orders of magnitude. So back to that uh, Sharon Begley article from 2018, she writes about how there's a team of researchers based out of Harvard University that were able to assemble an almost complete genome for our, our old friend we mentioned in the last episode and I think earlier in this one, the Lil Bush MOA or Anomalopteryx didiformis. Uh, so these, again, would not be the biggest ones. These are not the towering MOA. These would be the smaller variety. But I would not be surprised if they could still kick your throat out. I, I You know, they probably were some tough little customers. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, the, the little bush moa went extinct in the 13th century. Uh, now, this work was dependent on DNA extracted from the toe bone of a moa that was housed in the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. And this kind of reconstruction is not easy at all because, while you can extract a lot of genetic information. The physical genome, uh, the, like the, the chromosomes, are often kind of shattered. So you have to figure out how all the pieces of information that you've extracted fit together into a broader chromosomal structure. Uh, And as with other assemblies of this kind, the researchers here looked into the genomes of living relatives for clues, basing the reconstruction of the pieces on the reference template of an emu, kind of like how mammoth reconstruction would be based on the genome of of living elephants and things like that. Now, at the time of Begley's article, there were several experts in the field who praised the work. Uh, Morton Allen Toft, who we were talking about several times, uh, he called it a significant step forward. Also, the evolutionary molecular biologist Beth Shapiro of UC Santa Cruz praised the research. There was one concerning feature. So this paper uh, in 2018 was published on BioArchive, which is a non-peer-reviewed preprint server. So it's like nothing wrong with something going up on there. It's a place to post research for public access and review before it gets published in a journal. But I was unable to find evidence of this paper appearing in an actual journal since then. So I'm not sure what that means. Uh, maybe it doesn't mean anything, or maybe it means something about this genome assembly didn't hold up to scrutiny. I guess uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But uh, either way, the recent disappearance of the MOA, I think, absolutely makes them a potential candidate for de-extinction, and this research helps move things in that direction. Now, of course, just because we could doesn't necessarily mean that we should. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have a position on the ethics of de-extinction overall, but... Uh, Obviously, that's a question that should be considered before we uh, bring these things back and just set them loose at Disney World. But what an attraction that would be at Disney World. Right. You go up to the Mickey, you get your picture taken with the Mickey, then you go up to the MOA, you try to get your picture taken, you see if it cooperates. (laughs) Yeah, danger zone for sure. But it's like, what what if Donald Duck could kick? What if he had the mighty claw toe? Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors to consider and potentially reintroducing uh, a creature like this, uh, you know, even if it's 100% feasible to to bring them back, because again, you're you're 
to a certain extent doing what all these different waves of uh, interference have done in the past. You're taking the environment and you're shaking it up again. You're you're adding something to it, even if it's something that used to be there in some form. Um, it's uh, it's a difficult equation. And then I imagine also there's the argument of, like, is this the best use of our, our energy? Uh, toward, I mean, should we instead be focusing on creatures that are still with us, that can, be, um, that can be saved, or creatures that are, say, extinct in the wild but can still be reintroduced? I mean, uh, a lot of those are, are you know, entirely separate battles uh, that, you know, that, that you know, certainly involve genetics. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a complex uh, situation. It's not just a matter of, oh, well, we can bring it back. Let's do it. Uh, MOA's everywhere. I'm just saying if we were going to make a park with de-extincted animals, uh, maybe maybe extinct giant birds rather than dinosaurs, since you can't do the non-avian dinosaurs. Why not terror birds and moas? <laughs> Without a doubt, I would I would love to see one of these creatures in real life. Uh, it, it, they just sound amazing. It's you know to, to see these these two-legged uh, organisms uh, ambling about uh, munching on twigs and, and branches, uh, it, it would, it would be beautiful, uh, provided, you know, there was, uh, there was the space for it. Um, so I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what happens with this. I know it's been, it's been brought up before, uh, sometimes I think by politicians even, um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's been kind of controversial. There's a New Zealand politician who for some reason has been, uh, very in favor of bringing back the MOA. I'm not sure why. Hmm. Uh, by the way, I just looked it up. Unfortunately, the terror birds appear to be just out of range, given the uh, the figures we were citing earlier. I think they went extinct probably around 1.8 million years ago. Ah, uh, well, there you go. The, the moa, moas it is then. Moas, elephant birds, uh, anything else, uh, you know, within within reach. That would have to. Those would have to be the main attractions at our park. Give me a host eagle, baby. Oh yeah, for for sure. All right, so there you have it, our two-part look at the MOA, uh, the rise of the MOA, the twilight of the MOA. I, I found this to be just a really uh, engrossing uh, project to, to work on because it ends up you know, dealing with so many things. You're dealing with, uh, with biology, uh, evolution of, uh, of organisms. You're dealing with uh, you know, the history of human migration, uh, colonial disruption, uh, and then the possibility of, of bringing an extinct creature back to life through genetic science. Uh, uh, it, it really has everything. Spared no expense. Yeah. All right. So obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. I also know that we have, uh, you know, we have plenty of, uh, of listeners uh, who live uh, in New Zealand and ha who have traveled to New Zealand or have some sort of roots or connection to New Zealand. Uh, we would love to, to hear from you about this topic. What are your thoughts about the MOA? Uh, and uh, what, what do you have to add to our discussion here? What are your thoughts about being called Kiwis? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I, would, I would love to hear from actual uh, New Zealand residents on the matter. Would they rather be called MOAs? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, both are the names of, uh, of birds, so I don't know. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson, who's doing a heroic job of helping us cope with recording from home. Uh, so so big shout out to Seth. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.